Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Farzad Mostashari, who has spent his career at the forefront of healthcare policy and health technology. He is currently the co-founder and CEO of Alidaid, which helps independent primary care practices deliver better care at lower cost through a physician-led ACO model and value-based care solutions. Farzad is the former National Coordinator for Health IT at HHS and he served as a distinguished expert at the Brookings Institute Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform. Prior to his work at the Office of the National Coordinator, he founded the New York City Primary Care Information Project, which equipped 1,500 physicians in underserved communities with electronic health records. He has been published in the New York Times, the Journal of American Medical Association, and Health Affairs, among others. Dr. Mostashari received his MD from Yale and his master's in population health from Harvard's School of Public Health. Dr. Mostashari, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Let's start with talking about primary care. A JAMA article found that the number of Americans with a primary care physician is actually declining, especially for those who are younger less medically complex, non-white, or living in the South. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's a, we have a primary care shortage. We have, uh, relative to other countries, we have a lot more specialists and a lot fewer primary care docs. And at the end of the day, I think it has, that has a lot to do with our payment system and the just how, how yeah. differently compensated primary care is. Uh, we'll get to that, I'm sure, today. Yeah. But you know, the problem isn't just limited to the young and the healthy, where you might argue, well, do they really need an ongoing longitudinal relationship uh, with someone to quarterback their care? Um, <laughs> something like 30% of all Medicare beneficiaries don't have a stable relationship with primary care practice. And you know, those seniors definitely need and, and research has shown would benefit from having that relationship. Interesting. So it's not just a supply issue, it's a demand issue. Well, I think in many cases it is the the lack of primary care uh, capacity, and particularly in professional shortage areas, whether yeah. it's urban areas or rural areas, uh, that definitely does is part of the the issue. But uh, yeah, I think there is something also in in that the concept of you have your family doctor uh, is under. Uh, pressure now from you know you, you can you can't walk by a strip mall and not see 
you know, a convenience care place and, and pharmacies are now saying we do primary care and your phone says uh, it does primary care <laughs> and your health plan says they, they want to, you know, give you a virtual primary care first experience. Yeah. So I do think that, that, that kind of, that kind of having a place that you associate with the place you're going to go to again and again to coordinate your care is under pressure. Yeah. And so the number of medical students who are going into primary care, the fact that that's been declining and more going into specialties, is that a salary issue? Is that just, it's not as appealing because of all these new technologies that are trying to replace the primary care relationship? I I don't think it's a technology issue. I don't think it's a, you know, intellectual issue in many ways. If you think about it, it's much, much, much harder to be a primary care physician Mm. and stay up to date on what's going on than it is to be a, you know, thyroid surgeon or something. Mm. Um, uh, It's hard, it's hard work, and uh, it's not as well compensated. And that I think creates this trickle down where uh, it, it changes perceptions and it changes the sense of, you know, well, if you're really smart, then, you know, you'd go into <laughs> dermatology, anesthesiology, radiology, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that uh, the economic, you can't ignore the, just the economics of it, that primary care is the lowest paid uh, of, of all hmm. the different specialties. And pediatrics is part of that. It is. It's, it's yeah. in a bucket, yeah. You know, what's interesting is actually geriatrics, which mm-hmm. is primary care for old people. Yeah. Is the only fellowship where you earn less money if you do a fellowship than if you don't. Why? Why is that? <laughs> because pediatricians are paid so poorly, uh, and they're the they're the people wow. that we need the most. Yeah, where the bulk of the healthcare spending is. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, why is it important to keep physicians independent, specifically primary care physicians? I think the uh, for us, you know, people ask like, what does it mean independent? You know, yeah. like you mean. You mean like they're not an employee? And like, no, most physicians don't have a shingle with their own name on it, right? Oftentimes they work, actually the most common thing is to work for another physician. What we mean by independent is the ability to act in the patient's best interest, what you think is in the patient's best interest, free from kind of corporate objectives. And that corporation could be a nonprofit hospital, right? So... (laughs) Uh, and, and in many cases, not so it's, not it, profit hospital though. Yeah, not so <laughs> a retained earnings <laughs> hospital, yes, a tax yeah. advantaged hospital. Yes. Uh, so that's what we mean by independent, in in particularly in the context of value based care, where you know you want to be sure that the the physicians really are thinking about what's best for the patient. How do I keep the patient out of the hospital? How do I reduce unnecessary suffering and unnecessary cost. And sometimes those are at odds with what the CFO of the hospital wants you to do. And I actually think that's a big part of the burnout that we're mm-hmm. seeing, uh, which I think is a whole other podcast, but is when when the physicians feel that the duty they owe their employer is different from the duty they owe the patient. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by independent is when you don't have that misalignment. Yeah. And has COVID worsened this burnout? I know that's another podcast, but I'm just... Oh my gosh. (laughs) We have to address it. Yeah, no, it it has absolutely increased the burnout in part because, you know, our mantra is good for patients, good for doctors, good for society. And when you have misalignment, when, when you as a physician feel like what the duty I owe society 
and you know what I think is best for the patient. That and like I'm at odds with the patient. Like yeah. that is the worst, right? At, at a time initially, when you know the, they, we couldn't find PPE and people and physicians yeah. and nurses were getting infected and sick. And remember those those early days, like everyone was talking about these healthcare heroes, right? And then and then the politicization of vaccine recommendations and mask protocols. Uh, those made it even worse because now you have, and, and we see this, uh, we had uh, one of our physicians who was the National Rural Healthcare Association Physician of the Year in Kansas, who'd lived in this community all her life, became the target of people, you know, uh, <laughs> mad at her and and screaming at her because they perceived that, you know, she was, she was somehow a, a, a tool for, you know, whatever. And that's what rips uh, and that's what is 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 causing, I think, more burnout than anything else. It's the switch from uh, being aligned with your patients to f- sometimes feeling that the patients are are really not aligned with what you know is best for them and best for society. Yeah, it's almost like this additional emotional labor that yeah. physicians, nurses, anyone really working patient facing roles has to face over the, has had to face over the last few years particularly primary care. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. And so a lot of people say that we have a physician shortage because our actual number of physicians for per capita is lower than other countries. Do you think that this is a problem that we can solve? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think uh, it's not just physicians though, but primary care capacity is is about a whole team, right? And and it may be harder to ramp up uh, capacity on on the primary care physician workforce, although that can happen. I think if, you know, primary care paid like urology, you'd see a lot more primary care docs, Uh, but also the ability to recruit and retain all the the staffing around it to increase the capacity, increase the effectiveness. We have a lot of primary care physicians who aren't, you know, who are doing a lot of manual work, who are doing a lot of the work that others on their team could be helping support them for, but they don't have the money to pay, uh, you know, a nurse, so or two nurses or three nurses, so they're having to do it all themselves, and so that I think is is part of the solution. Yeah. Okay. So you are a known advocate for value based care. Can you explain to our listeners what this means? <laughs> value based care to me, the simplest explanation is if in your business model it is more profitable to prevent strokes than to treat strokes, you're mm. doing value based care. So, yeah. <laughs> so right now. Uh, the reason why we have a lot of stroke centers, we have a lot of neuro ICUs, we have a lot of companies making electric wheelchairs, uh, is because we wait until people have strokes and then we will pour any amount of money into treating that stroke. But we control blood pressure two thirds of the time. Not because it's hard to control blood pressure, but because, frankly, organizations don't have the incentives, the profits. Uh, from preventing strokes, if yep. you paid as much for a stroke as you did for preventing a stroke as you did for treating a stroke, you would see <laughs> a very different set of activities come to the fore. And yeah. that's what value-based care is. It's saying if that that there should be economic incentives around things not happening, suffering not happening, hospitalizations not happening. Okay, so I have to point out how your voice just started glowing when you were talking about this. This is clearly something that, um, I, I mean, yes. I think for a lot of us, it's it's maddening that we've built this fee-per-service industry um, yeah. that has 
had perverse incentives for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we got to the point of, of fee-for-service, how we can change that, and how it is currently being changed? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's understandable in a way, right? Like, you fix my car, I pay you, right? You, you, you do something, like you give me a service, pay me by the hour, right? And the, the challenge with we can all understand the the beauty of paying for strokes that didn't happen, but what you need is you need pretty sophisticated, I think, data and analytics and and business frameworks to have a sense of the counterfactual, like compared to what? If if strokes go down, compared to what? It's the compared to what that has been hard to figure out exactly how we can all agree and by the, the most important people to agree here are the payers and the providers, right? That uh, this is how much it should have cost. This is what the benchmark or budget should have been. And this is what it actually was. And so we can agree on 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 what the value that was created in the middle was. Yeah. And that has been the work literally of 20 years of work mm-hmm. to create different payment models that can be agreed upon by all sides that are fair and sustainable. And so that to me was was like the most exciting part in 2014 when the uh, accountable care organizations were really becoming part of the the permanent program in Medicare and they were being iterated and the policies were being said. It was like, oh my gosh, this is now finally there is a viable way to create a business in value-based care. Yeah. And the patients win too. No one wants to get a stroke. Exactly. We'd all prefer to stay healthy. Very much so. Yeah. So is this world more possible now because of technological advancements over the last decade? Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> we met uh, first when I was, I think, national coordinator for health IT. Yep. Yep. And we were on this mission to enable, um, you know, the reason why I was doing it was I was a public health guy was to have better control of blood pressure and fewer medical errors and better communication. And we successfully uh, got American healthcare off of paper and pen onto computers and blood pressure control didn't change. Did you expect it to improve? Oh, hundred percent. I did. Yeah. So that was, a f- I had a profound feeling of um, disillusionment that technology was going to be the answer. But at the same time, it's no accident that there are a whole host of companies that do kind of what Allidate does, and we call them fellow travelers, that are doing physician enablement, value-based care, that they all started around somewhere between 2012 to 2015, right? Why? Because finally, there is a technology infrastructure that you can use to match up that clinical data with the claims data, to do predictive models, to have workflows that can be replicated in diverse practices on that operating system of, of a new technology foundation. So uh, technology is essential and it is the difference maker. My, I'll tell a personal story. My father-in-law who passed away last Thanksgiving was an amazing guy, physician, who started one of the first staff model um, HMOs in the United States in the 70s in in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, he was called at the time a a communist (laughs) for 
you know, having uh, this different payment model, right, where they had the right incentives, right? And they, mm-hmm. they employed physicians. And he's, when I started the company, and then he went on to become dean of Tufts Medical School and, and head of wow. Tufts Health Plan and so forth. Amazing guy. But I started the company and I had been a, you know, a government bureaucrat <laughs> as long as he'd known me, married to his daughter, right? And I said to him, Papa, you know, I'm going to start a business. And he said, oh, really? What's the business going to do? And I said, oh, we're going we're gonna, to you know, take risk. And if we reduce costs, we get to keep some of it with the primary care docs. And he looked at me and he said, uh, so far as that, how is this different than what we did 50 years ago? <laughs> and and? I, said, I said, well, it's not that different. Um, <laughs> but then I showed him our, our tech stack. And Mm -hmm. I I could just see the tension Mm -hmm. draining away from him when he was like, oh, this is why it's different. Mm -hmm. It's not different in the purpose. It's not different in the economics. What's different is that you actually have technology that can help the scale. Yeah. I feel like HMO has got a bad rap for kind of being this gatekeeper. Yeah, because there, there wasn't that many ways that primary care could reduce costs and the, they they mm. did the, they took, did the easy way at least in the public perception of like their job is to give people less not more yeah. and you know for us it has been a real mantra is patients have to feel like they're getting more not less they're mm-hmm. getting concierge primary care they're getting more accessible primary care they're getting more available primary care they're getting more informed primary care more engaged primary care more aligned primary care they're getting yeah. more not less yeah and do they feel that? Yeah. They're getting that. Yeah, plus plus 92 net promoter scores from yeah. patients towards our practices. Yeah. We'll be right back after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And so the way that 
the capitation model works. I don't know if you like that word. It's technically capitation, though. It's fine. I mean, capitation <laughs> is one flavor of, of okay. the overall of you know picture that you can have. Yeah. Risk-based contracts, global risk contracts, total cost of care contracts, shared risk contracts, whatever, full risk contracts. They're all they're, it's all the same. It's basically uh well you have a budget and and cost for all the costs of the patient, right? Yeah. Uh and including the hospitalizations, which is the single most expensive source of suffering in the system, and if costs go down below what that expected is, you get to keep all or some of it. Okay. Yeah, we learned the capitation model when I was in my MPH program. Um, And so rewarding physicians for keeping patients healthy is a big tenet of that. How exactly are they rewarded? So say we have a a cohort of 100 practices at at Allidade, right? We get the practices together. We get these as as many of the health plans uh, for their patients as we can to agree to this framework, right? If costs go down, you get to share. we, We get to share in it. So they might have uh, one and a half billion dollars of spending for those for their patients. A hundred primary care doctors. Insane amount. That's just an insane amount of money, right? Yeah. You get a hundred primary care docs. These, you know, like people uh, scrapping, right? Yeah. And their patients could have easily uh, one and a half billion dollars of spending. If you reduce that spending by ten percent, which is what we've done, now done in you know by year four of working on this, we just reduced all cost hospitalizations by 15%, total spending down 10% compared to budget. That's $150 million. And then you say to the health plan, okay, you get to keep some of this, right? So like maybe the health plan keeps 50 million because so that they can reduce premiums and they can get yeah, some benefit. Yeah, they've taken on the financial risk. Yeah, they, well, right. they take they take on some of the risk, but most of the financial risk is now shared with mm. the with the provider groups, um, and that leaves a hundred million dollars, right? And that hundred million dollars is what you know goes back to the practices, and it pays for us who are the enablers of the contracts, the technology, the playbook, and so forth. Yeah. So you told us that you know you had this career arc from government. Maybe communist. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> to you've you now run a company that I believe made three hundred million last year. Like, yep, pretty successful company. Um, yep. Tell us about kind of that that transition from being in what you think of as kind of slow moving bureaucratic environment oh, to fast paced tech company that requires a ton of collaboration across many multiple stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, my my government experience was probably not typical of what people th- at least think about. You know, we did when I was in the New York City Health Department for ten years. We we did the primary care information project, which you know was for, went from nothing to you know a thousand, a fifteen hundred physicians. We then was at the Office of the National Coordinator, which went from thirty employees to you know just just being setting the rules for thirty billion dollars to be dispersed and a billion dollars and. 60 nonprofits in every state. And, you know, like it was a, I was in these very atypical things where it really did feel very startup-y. So for me, it didn't feel that different. Honestly, it's like the the skills are kind of the same of you got to be able to create a very concrete vision of of the future. You got to motivate people toward that vision um, and and then you got to create a belief that that, that <laughs> unlikely future is not only possible but inevitable. 
uh, and then laid the strategy for how to make that happen. The one difference I will say is it was a lot less stressful to run a startup than it was to run a federal agency. Seriously? And so, oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, there's, yeah, interesting. It, it's, you know, you look at these people um, who, who take those, those top jobs and the average tenure is probably two years because it's yeah. just so exhausting. Um, that says so, a lot about that. I've, I haven't worked in government, but I've worked in startups and it is very stressful at a startup. So not as stressful as running a federal agency. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we all face naysayers in healthcare. Can you share a story about a, a roadblock that you faced in your work, your current work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the wrong mental model and mental models are really important. And my mental model of healthcare costs um, was that it's a super saturated cloth. Like every, you know, this fee-for-service system has created just like this incredible excess of costs compared to other systems. And this is the important part. My mental model was if we give that, that super saturated wet cloth half a twist, tons of money is going to pour out. Mm. And it turned out <laughs> that in our first year's experience uh, with this uh, accountable care organizations in four states, we reduced all-cost hospitalizations by 7%, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And costs went up. Uh-oh. Because the hospitals, uh, seeing that they're earning less revenue, increased their coding, particularly for sepsis. Wow. And they got paid instead of, you know, $5,000 for a UTI or normal pneumonia admission, they got paid $11,000 for a sepsis admission. Wow. And my, it was my realization then that, oh, it's healthcare is not a super saturated cloth waiting for you to give it half a twist and pour out all the money. It's a bunch of goblins holding on to gold coins. <laughs> And you, you have to, analogy. you have to pry their fingers off the coin, <laughs> and then you turn around and they've grabbed another coin. So, <laughs> so every dollar of yeah. waste is someone's, you know, revenue uh, yeah. based on suffering. Yeah. Do you think systematically there was someone at the hospital who was looking at? Yeah, they're, they're called billing. CFO. <laughs> okay. and, they, and so they were like informing their yeah. doctors to yeah. rethink billing. Wow. Yeah, it's called it's called CDI, clinical yeah. documentation improvement. <laughs> There's a name for it. Yeah, and you know, in some ways, strategy. McKin- the, did McKinsey come up with it for them? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> and it's and 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 you know, like what helped them do it was EHRs too. Yeah. So the the length of stay did that I assume that had that decreased so they had fewer nights from your yeah. patients under your care. Well, yeah. The, the 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 key thing for us is to prevent the hospitalization in the first place. Mhm. Once they're in the hospital it's very hard to control what happens in the yeah. hospital. And how do you do yeah. that with patients other than like, prevention. tangibly okay. <laughs> prevention, but like what what is that? Prevention. Is it is it catching things earlier? Is it changing behaviors? Like what exactly can can or yeah. is it telling them, hey, if you think you need to go to the ER, call me first? Like what are the actual Oh my gosh, you, you are a great you're a great marketer because after four years, 
We devised that slogan, call me first. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. So we do, uh, we've had to kind of shrink the change, right? And, and script the moves for, for these practices because it can be overwhelming. Like you want me to control total cost of care, but I don't control everything. And so what do you want yeah. me to exactly do? And so there's four things. The first thing is one visit a year should be just to sit and talk about what's going to get you in trouble and what can we do today to- For how to long? More than 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> these are, these are longer visits. And there's like, you know, 13 different quality things that we're going to talk about and we're going to talk, right? We're going to go through this, this template of a preventive visit. We call this the annual well visit for seniors. That's the first piece of it. And we found is that one of those visits um, prevents $500 in cost over the next 11 months. So that's great. Yeah. And, and it's free to the patient. Great. The second is when the patient is there sitting in front of you for another visit, they came in because they have a headache. They came in because whatever. Uh, to, to be informed about what's going on in that patient's life outside of the four walls of the primary care office. So we will tell the physician at the point of care when the patient has come in for any visit, uh, we will say, you, you know, they're not, you're not, they're not filling their prescription, right? Hmm. Right. And they're like, oh no, I did not know that. In fact, right? how would they know that? Yeah. Right. How would they know that? We, we yeah. get the, the, the claims data and the pharmacy data and we do the analytics and we present it to them right at the point of care. Right. Uh, we said to them, oh, do you know, do you know all the specialists this patient is seeing? Because here's the list of all the specialists and when the last time was they saw them and what they saw them for. And the primary care doc is like, no, in fact, I did not know that, right? Did you know that they went to the emergency room two weeks ago? No, I did not know that, right? So uh, it's giving the, arming the primary care docs with information from across the ecosystem and making it tangible insights into what are the highest priority things for this patient at the point of care. Uh, and then there's two other things, which is what you which you alluded to. Every time one of your patients, one of your flock goes to the emergency room, you should not only know about it, you should not only care about it, you should do something about it. And for us, it's reconnect with the patient and see what's going on and see if you can help keep them healthy and, and from going back to the emergency room, which is the gateway to the hospitalization. And so... You know, there's a lot of obviously technology underpinning that of like real-time event notifications and pulling data from HIEs and ADT feeds and blah, 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 right? But at the end of the day, it's in the doctor's office. There's now a new workflow, which is boot up the computer and go to the work list every day of the people who were in the emergency room yesterday and give them a call mm -hmm. and check in with them. That is hugely powerful in part because of the message it sends the patient that there's somebody who cares and someone who's watching. And if mm -hmm. I go to the emergency room for something that I'd, I could have gone to the primary care office for, they're going to call me yeah. and they're going to say, did you know that our offices have, you know, same day appointments? Did you know that, you know, do you know our number? Call me first. Yeah. And so that change in mentality and change in habits is, I think, a big part of it. But the, it all starts with prevention, honestly. Mm-hmm. So on the prevention side, are there lifestyle behavior change, anything from smoking, eating, ac physical activity that these physicians can support, whether it's referring out yeah. to different programs? Yeah. So um, what we then have them do is uh, primary care. <laughs> so, okay. so instead of me trying to tell a primary care doc who's put their 10,000 hours in how to primary care, 
I'm like, listen, you're the, you're the expert here. You figure out how, what this person is going to respond to the most and, and how to talk to them about whether it's behavior change or taking their medications or, you know, some other service. So I, I think that is, um, you know, a tool Gawande came to, to see us and uh, we had described what we're doing. He said, uh, we, we talked about how we're improving blood pressure control. And he said, so you must have very specific medication escalation protocols. I said, no, no, we don't. We just tell the primary care docs, like, do, do what you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're just highlighting that they should yeah. pay attention to blood pressure control. We're not telling them how to do it. Yeah. And then over the last two years, I imagine a big conversation that these PCPs are having is around the vaccine. Yeah. Because that's going to, that ultimately is going to keep their patients out of the hospital. We exactly. know hospitalizations and vaccine rates are exactly. related. Exactly. What are you seeing? And is that different in rural conservative communities versus your doctors that are practicing yeah. in more progressive communities? Did that oh, impact sure. their bottom line last year? For sure. But I will say um, the vaccine distribution um, didn't really emphasize primary care. Um, when it when it could have should have when there was a scarcity of vaccine supply, states um, and the federal government prioritized max vaccination sites and pharmacies, mm. and I think that was a mistake. And I you know I said so at the time. Yeah, I, I think you could have anticipated that vaccine supply was going to ease, and the problem was going to then switch not to you know people needing to get um, the, the people who are going to, who, who can get whole foods online delivery slots, yeah. <laughs> getting yeah. vaccines, but the more resistant, right. Who need a conversation with their primary care doc. Absolutely. And, and we did not condition people to say, you know, where you're going to get the vaccine is from your primary care doc. Go talk to them. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, that I think was, that was, was an unforced, mm-hmm. unforced error, but there's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful YouTube video from one of our, one of our, you know, docs, Jen Brule in Kansas, where she talks about how she patiently um, talks to her patients who are hesitant uh, about the vaccine. They're not anti-vaxxers. They're just hesitant. And they've heard a lot of, you know, things that aren't necessarily true. And she just steadily, patiently works with them just as she would work with someone with high blood pressure who's, you know, still having a lot of salt. Mm-hmm. It's not a one and done conversation. It's it's a conversation that builds on the trust that you've built with them over a prolonged period of time. That's primary care. That's what it is. Yeah. I love that. It's it's too bad that I I get my flu shot at my primary care visit every year. Mm-hmm. It would make sense to have mm-hmm. um, you know, all the vaccines there. And and for minority populations, that's even more <clears throat> true that they tend to get their flu shots mm. more from their primary care mm. practices than from mass vaccination sites or pharmacies. Yeah. So on, on that topic, um, on serving folks who have traditionally historically been underserved and marginalized, how do you think value-based care enables more equitable care for poor rural communities? Yeah. I used to think that, um, that if we just focus on the, the the patients who need it the most, the sickest patients, um, that we would automatically address health equity. And after George Floyd, we did a reckoning internally. And we said, well, is that true? Because we'd never actually looked at it. And what we found was that we do a very good job 
of having equity in terms of our processes. We do preventive visits. We call patients for preventive visits just as much, regardless of their race, ethnicity. We, you know, call them after an emergency room visit just as much within, within any given practice. There's no discrimination at the practice level. And yet, systemically, blood pressure is higher um, in, in our African-American patients and our white patients. And if you look at severely out of control blood pressure, 160 over 100, the thing that's going to cause a stroke, it's 8% among our black patients across 38 states and 4% among our white patients. Wow. So we said, you know, value-based care sets the predicate for a whole series of competencies and capabilities that you need to be able to look at the data, to be able to reach out to patients, to be able to prioritize, to be able to highlight, right? It creates all those capabilities, but you don't automatically address health equity unless you address health equity specifically. And so we set it as a separate objective um, for our company objectives and our executive compensation and bonuses and and our kind of OKRs for the whole company was reducing severely uncontrolled blood pressure among black patients. Wow. Are there other programs that you guys are considering or have done around cultural competency? Yeah. um, We try to really weave it into everything that we do, but that to me is more on the process side, right? And and I'm saying if if this is an Mm -hmm. outcomes game where at the end of the day, like you want to say like, did you reduce hospitalizations or didn't you, you know, (laughs) did costs go down or or did you make a good effort, right? It's not about, it's not like we have to look at those outcomes. Yeah. You focus Uh, on the destination and those providers can figure it out. But are they, I'm sure some of them have figured out best practices. For instance, um, I know I've seen the research that black women are less likely to be addressed when they have pain issues uh, than, than white counterparts. How are we able to kind of disseminate this sort of information so that there's awareness? Yeah. Well, and I think this is where technology can be a something that that pours into concrete or makes even opaque, more opaque existing biases. Uh, and in particular, I'm talking about uh, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can be something to help actually address those uh those and, and equalize those biases. So um, uh, we had this really, really, really interesting, I don't, <laughs> do, do you have time for a little diversion into yes. AI health yeah, equity? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, we give lists of things to do, right? For the, for the practices. And one of the lists was uh, people who have become disengaged from primary care, call them and pull them back in. Right. What? How do you define disengaged? Like you, they haven't had a visit with you for the past nine months. Okay, got it. And then you know we have some uh, other kind of machine learning uh, estimates of, and they are likely to get into trouble. Right. They actually need primary care. So we make a list, and then we say, okay, how did how did it how did it work? And it turns out that there are some patients who. Uh, if you put them on the list, you're more likely for the practice to successfully reach them and get them to come back in. And so if the question is, and this is so much of, of MLAI kind of analytics is about what's the question you're asking the machine, right? 
Um, the question we asked at first was, well, if we wanted to prioritize this list so that you know, if the practice can only call 10 patients, they should call the 10 patients who will give you the highest yield in mm. terms of successfully having a successful outcome, which is like the patient comes in for a visit. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right, Hallie? Yeah. Right? Well, we did that. We, we found a model that actually does a bang-up job of predicting that. And before we actually put it into practice, though, one of our analysts said, we should look at the racial breakdown. Hmm. And it was all white, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it turned out that yeah. uh, 15% of the list overall were black patients, which is similar to our overall group. But among the prioritized group of people who are most likely to respond, 8% black. It's just looking at the world as it is. And it's saying, well, you know what? When you, given your current approaches, when you call, when our practices call their black patients, on average, right, they're mm-hmm. less likely to get us. Maybe it's because they, they don't pick up the phone. Maybe it's yeah. because, you know, the, the conversation you have with them didn't work. Maybe it's because there's not the right contact information, whatever it is, right? Yeah. But the end result is if we just follow the machine, we would worsen yeah. those that 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 is the definition of systemic racism, right? And we would have worsened it. So instead, we're asking a different question now. What are the practices who do a really bang up job of having successful outreach with their black patients? Can we identify they, those practices yeah. and and have essentially an anti-racist algorithm where we try to change the intervention that's happening in order to make it more successful in reaching those populations? And have you found that black patients are more likely to engage if they have a black physician? That is definitely what the research shows. Yeah. We, we don't have the race ethnicity of our of of not just the physicians but the nurses and the person calling on the mm. phone right which yeah. i'm sure is a big uh, is a big part of it but what we have done is intensified our outreach to minority owned practices mm. and we we've created what we call this mosaic pod which has been you know very well received and and i think part of the thing is always like you just have to reach out, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like we we were reaching out through the existing networks of the practices we'd gotten first, and so we weren't reaching those minority-owned um, practices. And then when we reached out, guess what? <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of them wanted to sign up. Why wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah, of course. So what's next for you and Alidaid? So the big thing that we are doing is thinking about what are the wraparound services that could help our practices succeed even more. So the heart of value-based care is primary care, but a primary care office can't, in the time, in the hours in the day that they have, address all of the needs of their, particularly their most complex patients. And so what we're thinking hard about is, what are some, some services that we can help wrap around our practices um, that that would um, that would address those needs. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are, you know, as part of that wellness conversation that I mentioned, like part of it is what are your preferences and wishes for, you know, in terms of end of life care. What are some different scenarios, and what what do you, what, what what matters to you, right? 
But there's some patients who it's just super complex. They have a touch of dementia or they they have disabilities that are complex. They have a complex family situation. They just need a lot of conversation. And uh, and they may be, in fact, uh, in in the last year uh, of life, that they, like they may be more likely to actually face these questions. And so that's the scenario where as a primary care doc, you're like, gosh, like I just don't have three hours to like speak exhaustively with the patient and then call in their daughter in California and then bring their son from New York in on the same phone call. And then we can all have the discussion. We can video the discussion and then we can go through a bunch of scenarios, right? But there happens to be a service <laughs> that does this hmm. uh, uh, that we had engaged with. And we actually did a randomized clinical trial where we cut the list, we prioritized the patients, we gave them only half the list, and then we compared outcomes for the, the folks who got the service versus who didn't. And we found a big reduction in hospitalizations, particularly those um, uh, uh, patients who were prioritized appropriately. And so we now we went out and we bought the company. It's an advanced care planning company called Iris. And we said, we want this to become available to all of our uh, highest risk, most complex patients. And so that is the first piece of what we're calling Allidate Care Solutions, which are going to be services, as uh, as I mentioned, that are going to wrap around our practices and their patients uh, to to be able to to help you know do more stuff that's good for the patient, good for the doctor, and and good for society. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, Dr. Mosasari, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. This was fun. This is Hallie Teco with the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's discussion, subscribe and leave us a review. Have an idea for a future episode? Share it with us at heartofhealthcarepodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seeley. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.